Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello and welcome back to First Act, a podcast from Koshy's Business Builders. I'm Seth Busby. Thanks for joining me. Now, I'm usually joined by my uh, lovely co-host, Adam, but I'm afraid he's got tonsillitis, so no talking for him today. So you've just got me. And if you're listening for the first time, First Act is a delightful podcast where we take a deep dive into the origin stories of Australia's most fascinating movers and shakers in business and life. Now, I hope you find some fascinating insights into where great ideas come from and the often bumpy roads that we take to get there. So let's meet our guest. Today's guest is Catherine Belisha. Now, Catherine knows what it's like to be a woman navigating a male-dominated industry. As the Managing Director of Belisha Farms, Catherine is a force to be reckoned with in the agricultural industry. She's passionate about all things fruit and veg, and when she's not busy running the family business, she's got her hands full with Veggie Education, a support service for those in the veggie business, and Food Futures, which is helping to train the next generation of food experts. Catherine, thanks for joining me on the show today. Good morning, Sess. How are you? I'm fantastic. I'm glad we got over our little hiccups with our tech and now we're on our way. So that's great. I must admit, I couldn't have felt any more like a, a basic farmer when I was having to navigate that computer just before to try to get the um, the tech going. So. <laughs> <laughs> it's nothing basic about you, Catherine. No, no, no. Well, I, go, I was very humbled about five minutes ago, I can assure you. <laughs> Well, don't worry about that. <laughs> now, I feel like we've already broken the ice, but we usually start the show with our first act icebreaker. And yep. your icebreaker for the day is, if you're a type of fruit, what would you be? Oh, if I was a type of fruit, what would I be? Um, oh, that's what, what I would like to be is probably something really tropical and rare, but probably what I am is I would say a banana. <laughs> They're solid, consistent, um, but can be made into lots of things and maybe sometimes uh, underrated or um, overlooked for, for something else, but uh, is consistently come back to in the end. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure what fruit I would be. Maybe an apple there, you know, dependable. <laughs> yeah, dependable. I, I do love a papaya, I must admit. That's probably that's probably my favourite fruit. Um, oh, I like yeah. a mango. Yeah, mango. They're good. They're good. Yeah. Or a stone fruit, but you don't really get any good stone fruit these days unless you, you know, know where to shop. So that's mm. a bit unfortunate. A cling peach, that is definitely up there. On, oh, I do like a peach. I do yeah. love it when... 
you know, it's coming towards summer and all of the stone fruit starts coming out at the organic markets and you're like, yay. Yeah, because too, it goes back to that because we're so used to having everything all the time when we want it. It takes us back to that time where you like there was that reverence where you'd eat as much as you can of peaches until you got sick of it because you knew you had a small window. Yeah. We don't really have that in fruit and veg anymore. So I think that's what also what makes it so exciting, stone fruit. Yeah, and the, the little, um, those little sugar plums, yum. <laughs> yeah, That's and all the like all the Asian fruit. You know, we um I live near Footscray and they have Saigon Market and that burnt down unfortunately. But all the kind of weird fruit there, I love that stuff. Mm. I love all the tropical fruit, little hairy rambutan. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> now you're a third generation uh, living on the land farmer. Like, can you tell us what it was like? Did you grow up on the land? No, we didn't grow up on on the land per se, and and where we our family are is Werribee South, which is a, not really rural or regional. So we're about thirty minutes from Melbourne CBD, um, and five minutes from Werribee, which is probably a major city now, really in Victorian Melbourne. So we lived about ten minutes away from the Werribee South district. So I've never lived on the land per se. Yeah. But the- you've never been drought stricken. <laughs> no, no, no. I'm very much a city slicker. I can't, so I, I don't have any of those kind of nostalgic um, regional stories, unfortunately. But um, my grandfather and his brothers came from Albania uh, in the 1930s. Um, and they came to Werribee South and started farming. And the reason they started farming vegetables was because of World War II um, and the Puckapunyal Army base needed fresh vegetables. So that's kind of why Werribee South turned into this um, this mecca of vegetable growing, a market growing area. Um, and then they had kids because, oh, well, they, they got some wives as they do. They um, called back <laughs> the country and got some shipped over. The, not not such romantic love stories in the European um, 1930s. So, yeah, they got some wives sent over. And then they had some kids because they needed some workers. And one of them <laughs> was my father. And um, his cousins all worked on the on the farm, the vegetable farm, and then they worked together as a family business. But as the saying goes, too many chefs spoil the broth, so they all kind of separated into separate businesses, but they all still worked in with each other in the industry. And then I started working in that business, my father's business, when I was 19. So that's been 20 years. Wow. That's yeah. a long time in the family biz. So oh, a long time. <laughs> <laughs> What um what were the first veggies that they grew on the farm? Just out of interest. So because um Werribee South uh, was mainly Italian migrants, we were Albanians, but um so kind of broccoli and collies was the main main thing that yeah. was that was started there because of that kind of Italian heritage. Um, still Werribee South itself produces seventy percent of all of Victoria's cauliflowers. Um, so every yeah eighty seventy percent of all cauliflowers sold in Victoria are Werribee South collie. Fifty uh, odd percent broccoli is Werribee South, and thirty odd percent iceberg. So, even though it's such a small area, it's still a really highly producing quality area. Yeah. And the reason kind of is for that too is because um, we don't in Victoria we touch wood, even though it's underwater at the moment, um, we experience less extreme weather than some of the other states. So it's a pretty reliable little pocket down there. Mm. That's fortunate for you and the family beers. Yes, yes it is. <laughs> so was the plan always to go into the Felicia Felicia Farms? Never. Not no. at all. Not in the slightest. <laughs> you were like, no, nah, get me away from this farm oh, stuff. Well, I was no, well, I was at um I was we have a lot of growers that grow for us. So we have a packing facility down in Werribee South and a distribution center. So that's probably kind of really our main 
you know, function in, in, in the horticulture industry, even though we do grow a bit, but we mainly have growers that grow for us. But yeah, I went to uni um, when I was 19, as you do after school, and I didn't really do much there. And then dad was said, you can't be lazy at school. So if you're going to be lazy at school, then you have to come and work. So I thought, oh yeah, I'll do that for a little while until I work out what I want to do, be when I grow up. And then I guess I think I just kind of stayed there for a while and it was probably really more to um, not really being confident, feeling like that you could I couldn't really do anything else per se because, you know, once you kind of get into the, the motion working for dad, it was both hard and easy at the same time. Mm. The pay was probably better than what, what I deserved to be paid. So all of those kind of comfort things kept me in there and I was pretty young and I know people would find it a little bit hard to believe but I was really, really um, quite insecure and unconfident. I've definitely grown into to that of latter years. But yeah, my 20s were, they were pretty unsure years, to be honest. I, w- I didn't enjoy working in the business. I didn't really see anything in the industry that was that remarkable. Um, if anything, it was a bit toxic, I would suggest. And I think it was just to the lens I was looking from. So like, that's what I liked about these podcasts. It's, you know, it's definitely, there's there's definitely not all happiness along the way of careers, that's for sure. <laughs> no, there's often a few bumps in the road. Yes. Yeah. So what was your first job? It was in the packing facility yeah, then? Yeah, so I started, yeah, so I started just packing. So we um we secured a contract with LD Supermarkets. So that was about 20 years ago and they were the, the German, the German company that was going to drop all the grocery prices. So my father through charm I secured that and it started really small so we you know I was doing that order myself which was one box of broccoli one box of lettuce and one (laughs) box of collies I think and we stuck it in the car and I'd drive it up you know and I'd be finished work within two or three hours and then (laughs) that's even though I wouldn't tell him on that um and then that slowly increased as 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 Aldi grew and you know now we do so 20 years on we do three or four truckloads of produce a day so that, that just expanded. We went from one worker to two workers to three workers and I kind of managed that process. But I think with the kind of horticulture and, and definitely with the migrant story, you know, it's that sink or swim and you don't really know what you're doing and you're just you're getting by. And I'm sure a lot of people in my early years under my, my charge would, um, wouldn't have suggested that I would be where I am today or, or the leader I am, nor, nor would have I. So it really is, you don't really know what you're learning while you're learning it until you reflect backwards on the on the journey, yeah. I guess. So, so was it really your dad's charm that got you into Audi that, in that first place? I would have suggested 20 years ago, yeah. Like it, it, the business was very different then. Things have really kind of um, professionalised now in, in, the whole, in the horticulture industry. Um, you know, there's things like tenders now and there's strategies and it's really quite an involved business. But 20-odd so years ago, it was very much a relationship kind of based business there was lots of, you know, you would do business with friends and family and stuff like that. I think what happened was one of uh, the companies in New South Wales had secured the contract with Aldi there and then they said that, you know, work with Felicia's, that, that, that they've got secure supply. So that's kind of how that love affair started and um, continues continues to this day. Aldi is still our biggest customer. So definitely our journey um, and our growth has been aligned to theirs as well. So we're very grateful for that. How is that journey for you? Like you're kind of traveling side by side with this challenger brand that's that's got a fantastic reputation. Did did that kind of spill over to you guys as well? Yeah, look, I think 
I think what was re- what's really good. Um, we do serve the other chains, but just not directly through other people. But Aldi, there's a there's an ethos I like about Aldi. They they really still are very much a family business. The Aldi story itself is fascinating. There was two brothers that started the Aldi business after the war too, and they you know their motto was very much, and they still to this day have these bulk lines that they keep cheap. And then the, there was tension between the families and a little bit of a direction, so they split the world in half. So there's, now, <laughs> there's two Aldi brands that are held um, and one family owns one half of the world and the other family owns the other half of the world. So <laughs> it's, still, it's still a family business to this day and if you talk to the buyers and the, you know, leaders in Aldi's, they still very much say there's that legacy of it's not a um, – yeah, it's very much a family business kind of in its ethos. So I think that suited us. Um, and I've, yeah, I've learned so much um, being aligned to them. And I think there's the supermarket, um, there's there's plenty of things that I disagree with in our horticulture industry with the supermarkets and the monopolies and things like that. But uh, I think Aldi have been been a good force in mm. that in that play. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I would agree. Like they're the first ones to kind of go environmental and sustainable and you think about their impact on the environment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're a really interesting company. It's 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 cool to be aligned to something so kitsch, I guess. Yeah, but we're not here to talk about Audi. We're meant no, to be talking no. about you and Valisha yes. and your yes. journey. In keeping with that family business thing, we've had other guests who are part of family businesses, mm. and it seems like there's always a bit of a tussle oh. kind of going on. Is was would that be safe to say for you as well? Uh, no, well, I don't think there was a tussle per se because I had no intention of taking over the business. To be perfectly honest, I was pretty disengaged for my career and my 20s. I, I never thought I'd have a career in horticulture. It was really just something I was doing until I found that thing that I wanted to do. So, you know. Uh, so there, there was wasn't a, of, a succession plan. You weren't like, Catherine's next in line. She's better not step up. <laughs> it was only dad and me anyway. So so what kind of happened was dad had a business partner and I was working in the packing shed and he split with his business partner when I was about 25. So I had to then go into the wholesale markets in Footscray mm-hmm. and that's night work. So I was selling there at the night and that's a that's definitely a pretty rough and tough um, industry there. You definitely get your streetwise about you working in the wholesale fruit vegetable market. Um it's not a lot of oh H and S or uh, work safe um, HR practices going on there. Well, it wasn't in my day. Um, <laughs> so, and that, and obviously working nights too. That was really isolating. I really hated that. It was, if anything, I was probably went through a little bit of a depressional period because I was just removed from my friends and you know normal life. Mm. And then you're kind of stuck in this world. So I was had full intention of leaving the business. So I went and did uh, a uni degree, a youth work degree, and that was also kind of the catalyst of I felt like I'd had I hadn't achieved enough. I underachieved with you know, and then when I went and did this degree, um, I think it was like twofold. It just not only did I then have a choice not to be there anymore, and that was really freeing, but I also then kind of had my confidence build, and then I just saw what opportunity lay in this fabulous industry that I now wholeheartedly believe is the most a, important industry um, we've got, but also the with the most opportunity for the most amount of people. So it's quite remarkable, you know, what, what a change in mindset can bring around. So yeah, that was it. That uni, uni changed my life, education changed my life and not through any 
skill it really gave me, but just through self-actualization and then my ability to move on from there. Mm. So you stepped into the role of managing director then. Um, how did that, that change come about? Yeah, so my father was getting, so we had a market stall and we had the Werribee um, part and I was in Werribee working and dad said he was getting ready to retire and he thought that he would sell the market and come and start working out of Werribee South. And I thought, oh, well, I can't, that, that's, that, I don't think that's where my next thing is doing, being that close there and, and being like that. So I gave my dad an ultimatum filled with love saying <laughs> it's either you or me and that I'm more than happy for it to be you but it won't be me. And he decided no way is it going to be him. So that's how I ended up buying the business off him. So again, it came again from that unit, like from I would never have had the confidence to even have considered that before I'd gone on and done my own kind of degree. So I can't speak more highly on what education and, and not again, not the learnings, but more so the freedom it gave me, like to prove to myself what I was able to achieve. And so it changed everything. So then I said, yeah, dad, I'll take on the business. And there were some real fundamental quick changes that I made that I guess, you know, dad in hindsight says, oh, you know, you told me to do this and I should have done that. Now you've done it. But, and you know, it's easy to criticize, but when you're in things and you're doing things, it's really hard. So I just made some real quick fundamental changes, which changed a lot of the things in, in Valicia Farms per se. And then that kind of led into the, the veg education journey, the new baby of the family, which is my pride and joy. <laughs> so what, what kind of fundamental changes are we talking? Just real efficiency stuff. You know, dad was a salesman. He loved to sell. And I guess our business was based around sales numbers, revenue, you know, moving stock, but not necessarily on business practices. And obviously to being aligned to Aldi's, which is a very tightly run business, if your business isn't matched to that, it's very hard to kind of align with how they need. So I really was quite ruthless with my efficiencies. Personnel obviously changed, um, changed through decisions of mine, but also just naturally changes because when you change a culture so drastically and you change things, things change. And obviously some people probably thought it would be their worst nightmare working under me. So so there was a big <laughs> personnel change, which was really, I guess, great too, because it was then easier to change things as we went along. The other thing I was really proud of, I guess, in, in hindsight and, and fundamentally is really the, the heart of our business is we had a multicultural workforce that has worked at Valicia in the packing facility for, you know, probably five, six, seven years. So I worked next to them. And what I didn't want to do is... Um, have these people that would be then with us for another 10 years but never be able to be promoted or moved anywhere and I just kept hiring on top of them. Mm. But also I knew that they probably weren't up to the the key roles that I needed them to be. So I sat down with that core group and told them the positions that I wanted to add into the business, um, the skill sets that were needed for that business and that they would have the first opportunity to fill them if they were to then upskill and do all those things themselves and to their credit they did I wanted to be honest about why they wouldn't be getting key roles in their current state but giving them the opportunity and they took that on full to their credit and what we've got now is this kind of powerhouse of people who've worked together and built trust together and are all on a forward trajectory so that was if some you know I guess that was my master move I think in hindsight because I've got this team of 
weapons now, really, that because I've put my trust in them and they've put their trust in me. So we've grown together. So it's pretty remarkable, really. And that's unique in our industry as well. There's not a lot of multicultural high leadership teams, which I think is to our detriment. Yeah, diversity and inclusion is so important no matter what sector you're in, I think. Everybody uh, having um, diverse opinions, diverse voices in the room just makes for better business. Yeah, for sure. And, And I think what was really important too is that we've got representation on who our people on the ground are also in our leadership team. So that's really important, obviously. We've all experienced the unpredictability of the weather over the last few years. <laughs> uh, and poor farmers, I just, I, that's just what I think, poor farmers. So how has it impacted you guys and um, how have you managed the risks moving forward? Well, if anything, there's definitely been, obviously, it's been really, really hard from a operational point of view. But I think from a conversation point of view, it's actually been very timely and very important. So operationally, there's not much you can do like the Queensland floods. What can you do? You know, um, we we are luckily enough have a, gr- a diverse growing base. So we do have growers around Australia. Um, so we can manage that a little bit that way. But people who've just got one place, things planted in one area, the most you can really do is make sure you've got money in the bank so you can ride the highs and the lows. Mm. Um, so that's really important to not just have a good year and then spend it the next year because really you don't know what's coming. So that's generally the best businesses have been able to manage their cash flow. But I think what's really been great is now we can start having some more of these conversations around what value is fresh produce to us, Um the realities, you know, we were just talking about the peaches, the realities of having food available or products available 12 months, the costs on both the consumer, the, the planet. You know, there's so many conversations that I think, conversa- not just conversations, decisions that we have to make as a society about what we hold as really important and, um, and then make some policy changes around that. I really think there's some real big um, policy decisions that need to be made around our food and fresh produce in particular. So uh, are you part of any lobbying groups? Do you lobby the government in regards to policy changes? So not in policy changes, but with Veg Education, which is an RTO now, we are working closely with government agencies, both, um, you know, local and and, and federal, uh, around, you know, training and how do we get more people into the work workplace. I work with Nutrition Australia and those other bodies trying to create programs around the consumption of veg and also just the understanding of veg. You know, the $12 lettuce, as much as I hate to talk about it, um, because I think it's just, I think it was, you know, hyperbole used and probably uh, really uh, muddied a very important conversation. But the $12 lettuce is a bit of a prime example that there was an extreme weather extreme weather event that happened and that wiped out all iceberg lettuce. So $12 lettuce was because there was no lettuce around and we really, you know, the market didn't want anyone to buy them. But as humans are, the scarcity of that product made it so much more attractive. So, So then there was this frenzy around not being able to get lettuce. And for years and years, we've been having conversations how iceberg lettuce is a dying product. Yeah. Salad baby cause and everything like this happened and then the whole toilet paper COVID kind of thing happened to it and it was just and it just really shines a light on you know 
what what as as Australians what do, what are we expecting from our food what do we really want from fresh produce how and how do we maintain it and I think these that's why the veg education piece I think is the missing piece because it's really talking about the supply chain what goes into growing and and really understanding it and I don't actually have an opinion either way about what's right or wrong I'm not going to pretend that I'm smart enough to know those answers but I think the key is to let people really see it all for what it is you know the industry the the things the problems the good the bad what our choices are and then make some more informed decisions about what what do we want how do we want to go forward and that's obviously where the policy piece plays into it you know how do we get people eating more fresh produce Hmm. you know what what is this fascination with the you know perfect fruit and vegetables you know all Uh. of these different things going together so yeah so many things to talk about. <laughs> and we'll talk about that more um, after this short break. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet... You can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. We're back with Catherine. Thanks for listening, everybody, and thanks again for joining me. Now, we were just talking a little bit about your uh, veg education and um, your food futures programs, and there's no denying that you're super passionate about the sector and it seems like education and innovation are very, very important to you. So what made you found these two education companies? It was a bit of a pivot, firstly, about how, how do we, you know, also shore up Felicia Farms. And it was a kind of, I guess, a real basic risk mitigation in like, what else, what do I know and what else kind of other areas could I go into? So that was kind of the, the formation of it. But what it has grown into and I guess what it has even grown in me in a passion sense I kind of feel like how how is this how has this not existed before this? But you know, this fruit and vegetables. Let's be really blunt about it. Other than air and water, do humans really need anything else to survive? I get. I'm sure the meat and dairy um, people might suggest that there is, but I don't believe really fundamentally there is anything else that we need to survive on other than fruit and vegetables. So we're stating that the little that we know about it the little that we really as consumers value it or care about it, how it gets there, and really the little support the industry gets um, is just its mind-blowing if you think of it that way. So veg education really is made for industry. It's not made for me or for Valicia Farms or anything else. I think firstly we have a a crisis with attracting and retaining staff in our in our industry, um, and that's because of a the conversation around our industry and 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 what people think is 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 horticulture um, compared to the reality. So we want to you know attract people by a telling the real story about the opportunities that exist. That really is also linked to that migrant story where you know we are the original entrepreneurs. We're the original startups. We're not framed like that. And, you know, we really do value hard work. So 
bringing that in, you know, there is so many opportunities for so many different people. doesn't matter what your race is. doesn't matter what your sex is. Even though it is a male-dominated um, industry, I always kind of say that, you know, if you're kind of trying to find that 20 cents in the dollar girls, horticulture is the industry to come and find it in because we're so thirsty for talent that if you just show us talent, we don't care what you are or who you are, you'll be put at the top. And that's really true. And I feel I feel like I'm a representation of how true that is. Um, so that's that first piece. And then the second piece is we need to understand about how much effort and imports and everything else go into growing vegetables. And as growers and as our businesses, we've left that conversation up to generally retailers, uh, chefs, everything else, every other business to kind of profitise from. And um, I think it's time that we start to drive that value back to us because it's our story, it's our risk and it's our hard work. So if people go to Veg Education, if they're, um, if they're working in the industry, what are they going to find? Well, we've got industry training, um, but the schools program is what everyone loves talking about. So we've been running primary school programs. So we've had like 4,000 students through um, Valicia Farms this year. And now there's this thing called Food Futures that we're creating for next year's high school. And this is what I'm really excited about. It's about linking home economic subjects, VCAL subjects, um, filling them with supply chain and industry connections. So it's all about the horticulture industry. It's all about the restaurant industry. You'll be hearing from me. You'll be seeing videos from, you know, people like Cobram Estate, Perfection Fresh, understanding what it goes into growing a banana and olive oil. And we've got Rice, Paper, Scissors, which is a restaurant chain in Victoria involved. Chef, We've got Chef Noah. He's teaching us all the opportunities and, and things like that in each industry. So it's really a first of its kind where industry is taking education into students so they can really get to know what opportunities there are and really get to know the inside of what it is to be, you know, in our exciting vibrant um, occupations. And does that lead to like kind of accreditation for yeah. if they want to study at TAFE or? Yeah, so or- it's Cert 2s. It leads to, you know, Cert 2. So then and, and there's also pathways into our businesses. But what it really does also, it arms you with some real understanding, some real skills that employers want. Um, you get to see, hear and taste all about the supply chain, you know, really understand sustainability and all those impacts coming from a business mindset as well. There's so much talk in the media about so many subjects and they're so simplified and they're so polarised, you know, because that makes a good story. There's a good or bad, there's a black and the white. Nuance is gone these days, but I think nuance is is the key to solving anything and being able to see both sides and being able to empathise with both sides and, and finding solutions that are, you know, not perfect, but, but move things forward. You know, perfection is unachievable progress is what we should all be aiming for so and that that you can only understand if you understand all of the different aspects and where everyone's coming from and that's what we try to do with food futures so was it partly born from the fact that like you spoke about there's this massive skills shortage you had a skills shortage in your own business where you needed to get people to step up and train is that Mm -hmm. also part of the reason why you started food futures yeah for sure there's a huge shortage um job shortage but there's also there's a knowledge shortage and i want people to come and get careers in horticulture because you can get such 
well-paying, exciting career. And like I said, is there anything more important than horticulture? Like growing, that's the way we save the planet and it's the only food we need. And we need people who have got new talent, new visions, new leadership. Like we need it, we need it here in this industry. There's no more important industry, you know, like so I, I want to show people that. I want to show people the opportunity. I want to show people the importance of it. And I want the best and brightest in horticulture and not, you know, it's always kind of been seen as the as, as one of the lower tiered occupations. And it's just it just seems, you know, ludicrous to me, really. Mm, we all need fruit and veg to live. <laughs> That's it. Exactly. Exactly. Should be like up with doctors. Yeah. Yeah. And and again, you know, this is where food futures come from. People don't pick occupations generally because they have any idea of what the day-to-day look like. You pick occupations based on uh, much more kind of ego is not the right word, but like who you see yourself as a person, the feelings that it, you know, connects, where it puts you in society, all of those things, right, is a lot of driving forces behind career choices. Well, if we really show what horticulture truly is, is about, well, then it should be as revered as being a doctor or a lawyer or anything else because there's nothing more important. So I'm trying to create those feelings for young people to feel like, yeah, I want to be, you know, a marketing manager in a horticulture business because I want to market fruit and vegetables because there's nothing more important and that's that's filling me with esteem other than just being a doctor or a lawyer. So it's all of that. There's so much that's going on but it's it's and again I think it's the nuance that maybe is what we're about, you know. We I don't it's not about polarizing, it's not about black or white, it's about bringing it all together and just showing showing it how it is. And I think if people see how it is, they'll see how good it is. Hmm. Do you think it's um, about highlighting that purpose element of of the piece as well? Yeah. The perp- purpose and opportunity and, and you know, the reality of how you can change it too. You can only change it if you've got a seat at the table. So come and get the seat at the table of the most important industry and let's, you know, change change the world for the better through this integral part. You mentioned earlier, you know, that the the, the sector is really thirsty for more women and um, yeah. as a woman you said you've, you've actually got, you've had, you know, plenty of opportunities but have there also been challenges because ag, agriculture and horticultural are traditionally kind of male-dominated industries? Yeah, I've, per- I've personally had plenty of opportunities and I think that's, you know, and I won't be uh, naive enough to say it was just merit at all it's 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 been because of those family connections you know uh, I've also been protected probably from a lot of things that you know other women have experienced that I haven't had to experience or have have experienced but had the safety net of being able to kind of protect myself without the risk of my job being jeopardized because of being a, you know a daughter and things like that so the, by no means am I pretending that horticulture is the perfect industry or, or, or doesn't have its challenges for women. But what I do really believe in is the opportunity it has for women. And the more women we have in here, the more diversity we have in our leadership groups, we change the culture and then we make it a culture that we want to be, which is, you know, a safe, inclusive, dynamic, um, inspiring place. So, you know, it is a burden and I sometimes, you know, I always talk to a few of the the guys that, you know, work with me at Valicia and say, you know, it, when you're a man, 
you know, and you run a business, you can just be a good businessman. No one expects you to change the world. Like you can just like running a business and that's good enough for everyone. But when you're a woman and you're a leader, everyone also expects you to care about everything. And the reality is you don't care about everything, but you do care about what you care about. And that's why it's so important to have more people involved in it because I care about certain things, but I don't care about other things. So we need people who do care about those other things, you know? So, and it also then takes the burden of us as women. We don't have to care about everything because I care about A and Sess, you care about B and you take care of B and I'll take care of A and we can do this together, you know? So (laughs) it's sharing the load of care too. (laughs) (laughs) I like the sound of that. <laughs> um, so when you were moving towards this um, this new kind of role and um, vision of, of who mm. Catherine is, were there any role models for you? Mm. No, probably not, to be perfectly honest. Not really. I've had a lot of supporters, you know. People have been always really good to help. I've asked, you know, for advice and things like that. But in fairness, I think I've had a pretty kind of uh, lonely journey per se and I guess that's kind of what what makes – and I think that is a bit of that migrant, you know, like I said, sink or swim. None of us have had the skill sets or been taught to – you know, we've been trying to survive ourselves to really be able to lead or help other people. And I guess kind of building my own capacity now, I don't want to be that kind of leader for everyone else. I do want to be a far more supportive leader and kind of help people. But in saying that, I think kind of doing it alone has brought a lot of trauma, but a lot of strengths as well. So <laughs> it's hard It's hard to, it's hard to really go back, you know, and, and say, oh, like there's a lot of things that I probably shouldn't have had to deal with or didn't deal with, but then it's probably given me so much capacity now. So I'm not sure if I would change it, if that makes sense. Yeah. So if you had to describe your kind of leadership style, what would it be? Direct. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Direct, but I think that that is also good because people are able to really, um, I'm direct. I use a lot of humour, obviously. Uh, I, I, I think it's brave. I lead by, I guess, example uh, more than more than words. People have seen me kind of turn a corner and really, you know, go out there and chase stuff, and I hopefully that inspires others to do that. And I, I guess, um, yeah, I do try to be as supportive as I can, but I, there is a bit of tough love sometimes I throw in there, and I don't think that does any harm, particularly if you want to be at the top. The reality is it's a hard place to be, so it's like training in the gym. If you want to be an Olympic athlete, there's no point in not being um game ready. I think it's consistent, it's 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 um courageous, but maybe it's a little self-centered at times. <laughs> <laughs> I think we're all a bit self-centered at times. I wouldn't wouldn't take that as a bad thing. <laughs> You'll have to ask my team, really, if you want the truth, probably. How I see myself how I see myself, and how they see me is probably very different. <laughs> Send me their number and I'll get the, I'll get the, the info. <laughs> now, entrepreneurship, you've, you mentioned very early on in, in this conversation, you know, like that um, farmers were, are like the original entrepreneurs. Yeah. And that's something I've never really thought about before, but it's it's pretty true, really. Um, so what would your advice be to anyone that's considering the entrepreneurial journey? I think it chooses you as much as I don't think 
I think if you're thinking, oh, I'm going to be an entrepreneur as that's what I'm going to be, you're you're a fool because it's not really that great. Like it's <laughs> like like it, it it's not something you choose. It's just like something that evolves. Oh, this is a business idea. This is how how you are. So it's not really. I don't think it's like a choice. And if you are choosing it externally and thinking oh, I have to do A, B, and C to be an entrepreneur, then you're probably not an entrepreneur. You shouldn't be an entrepreneur because it's it's hard work. It's hard work. The reality is. It's, you know, it, you're always on a knife's edge. You're always pushing into new frontiers that you don't know about. There's always risk on the line. There's always people to be let down. There's always yourself to be let down. I, I don't feel like I I choose it. I just, that's who I am. That's just, I have to keep moving forward and pushing forward. Like, I'm not satisfied. It's not what it looks like on TikTok, I can assure you. Well, that's <laughs> not my experience. <laughs> One day, Catherine. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't got a Bugatti and a Rolex driving around, that's for sure. <laughs> so what about that risk element? You say it's kind of in, inherent in being yeah. an entrepreneur. Um, how do you deal with that? Do you have to be prepared for some failures on the way and that's just a learning experience? Yeah, yeah, you do. Um, I think the the key is to always have such a bigger picture that the failures aren't stops. They're just like you manoeuvre through them Um, because if you just like if you have so many failures and if they were the end, like they would feel like the end, if if that makes sense, if I'm articulating that correct. So it always has to be such a bigger thing so it's just part of the walk. It's just you've tripped but you just keep walking because the walk is so long. Um, I think that's the key. It's a grind. It's just, it's just, it's just a grind, and I think that's the reality of it. You just keep walking and you keep doing it, and there's some real highs and there's some real excitement, but that's generally short lived. Between the reality of, you know, it takes. It's just, it's just, it's relentless. It's, it's like my um my friend Tracy. She had so, uh, had a couple of kids, and she said it's just relentless. It just never stops. And I spend some time with her and. Motherhood is relentless. For any mothers out there, I really do feel for you. It is relentless. But entrepreneurship is very much the same. It's just there all the time. You can't turn it off. <laughs> what about if you're a mum and you're an entrepreneur? <laughs> oh, well, good. Double I don't relentless. Know. I, don't know. I don't know how you do it. <laughs> well, hats off to you. <laughs> <laughs> all right. I think that's all we've probably got time for today. Thank you so much for chatting with me, Catherine. No Thank you. It was Highly enjoyable. Now, uh, if you want to learn more about Catherine and her journey at Belisha Farm, then head to belishafarms.com to find out more or also head to veggieeducation.com if you want more tips on how to run your food-based businesses or food.edu.au to find out more about training opportunities in the food sector. Thank you, Catherine. We've loved finding out about your first act. And thank you to all our listeners for joining us for another episode of First Act. Bye.